righteousness, your greatness, your power, your mercy. Lord, you are complete and completely perfect and completely holy. Lord, as we look to your uh, word this morning in the Gospel of Luke, we pray that you will help us to understand better about yourself and what we need to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so welcome again to you. Uh, In our study of the book of Luke, we've gotten all the way to chapter 6. So hopefully before the end of the decade, we'll get through the rest of it. That's a joke. Um, But uh, the Lord may come before then, which would be also very good. So uh, in Luke 6, though, uh, what we're going to look at this morning, we see a significant event in the ministry of Jesus, which is the calling of the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. They're listed as both in different places. Um, And it is significant not only to the ministry of Jesus, but the significance the apostles played uh, stretches all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. And we can see this significance in the Revelation where we are told something about the new Jerusalem. So let's look for a moment there. Revelation chapter 21, and this is all the way near the end of the book, uh, starting at verse 9. Uh, It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, It had a great high wall and 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The foundations of the New Jerusalem are named for the 12 names of the 12 disciples of Jesus. So not only will the foundations of New Jerusalem be named for the 12 apostles, we are also told of their significance in the church. If you were to ask many Christians who is the foundation of the church, most would, I don't know, maybe most, I think most when I've asked it, they'll immediately say, Jesus is the foundation of the church. But that's actually not precisely correct what scripture teaches us christ is the cornerstone of the church but the church if you have been in the church you'll learn that uh scripture teaches we're founded on the apostles and the prophets paul writes this in ephesians 2 starting at verse 19 so then you this is speaking to people in the church people who have faith in jesus christ and have found salvation in him so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. With all of that in mind, 
the passage we're examining this morning takes on perhaps greater significance than it would have if we simply look at this as a description of a simple managerial act that Jesus took. Unfortunately, some people see it that way. Oh, okay, he, he named the disciples, and that's nice, but it actually had eternal implications big time, right? So what we learn about the appointing of the apostles teaches us about how Jesus made decisions and how the decisions about what kind of people we delegate in leadership has great consequence. So we must also consider how we should be careful in how we put people into places of leadership. The Bible has much to say about the importance of being careful about who is put into leadership. Many of the narratives of Scripture tell us uh, both of good and bad consequences of different leaders, and we can learn from that. We learn from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, He told Moses, you know, uh, you can't do this all on your own. You need to appoint good men that can help you. And so leaders that are going to be effective, they need good help. And this is reiterated in Acts 6, where deacons were appointed to do certain tasks so that the 12 could focus on their main job as given by Jesus. What was the priority? And that was to be involved in prayer and the ministry of the word. And so uh, we're given by Paul as well uh, certain qualifications for some leadership positions in the church. So yes, the Bible teaches an awful lot about leadership. There's, in fact, there's, there's authors and speakers that have made a whole uh, career, so to speak, of teaching biblical principles from leadership. Uh, and it's an entire category of study that people can take. Uh, so the Bible is full of encouragements to godly leaders and warnings to ungodly, all of that. In Luke 6, we see that Jesus prepared himself to choose the apostles through prayer, and that he chose men not based on what would the normal qualifications we look for. Uh, in the end, we must conclude that Jesus chose these particular men based on divine providence, not on their personal abilities or characteristics. Um, they were chosen for this task that would have eternal consequences. So these 12 would be the foundations of the church, except for one, and we'll talk about him, uh, the bad apple, so to speak. We'll talk about that in a bit. But these 12 would be the foundations the church was built on and would be the foundations of the new Jerusalem to come or the foundations would be named for them. Uh, So there's an eternal significance. So let's look at the passage together. It's only uh, verses 12 to 16, and then we'll take a look and try to uh, go deeper into it. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So the first lesson we get from the the first verse I just read, verse 12, in those days, 
He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. So the first lesson is about Jesus praying. And why, why did he need to pray all the time when he was God? But Jesus made a habit and a demonstration of the fact that prayer was important. So this was no quick prayer. Sometimes that's all we have time for is a quick prayer. But this was no quick prayer. Jesus was in constant prayer. This is no exception. But what do we see about his prayer here? Well, first, he went out to the mountain to pray. So he got somewhere alone. Bruce Larson said this, spending time with God is the essence of worship. Everything else is stage setting. We can be in God's presence corporately or alone as Jesus was. Prayer together with others is important, but so is prayer one-on-one with God. Both types of prayer should be part of our Christian life. Prayer is a vital part of our worship, and yet it is often a neglected part of Christian life. And Jesus used public opportunities to show what prayer looks like. Sometimes those closest to him were privy to hear his private prayers as well. And other times he was off alone to pray, and we don't know always what he was praying about. But he allowed, even though it was private prayer, he allowed at times for his followers to hear him praying. Uh, in Matthew 14, 23, here's another example. He dismissed the crowds, and he went up to, on the mountain by himself to pray. It was a very common thing Jesus did. And it is not insignificant that Jesus spent much time praying before choosing the apostles. We're not told any specifics about this particular prayer, but we do know from other places where the prayers of Jesus are recorded for us that there were certain things he prayed for commonly. He prayed for the will of God to be done. Uh, He prayed that his people would be living in unity. He prayed that God would be glorified. And he prayed in submission to God's will. So I think we can safely say that these were probably elements of his prayer that night as well. So when we have a major decision to make, it would be helpful to take much time to pray. If Jesus needed a night-long prayer before choosing the apostles, something that we just discussed has eternal consequences, how much more should we spend on time and prayer before we consider or make big decisions? As we examine this passage together, may God grant us to have an increased sense of urgency in our own prayer lives. May he cause us to see the importance to prayer. And may we respond in, in considering how we may improve in our own prayer lives. Now, we know he prayed all night, and this means he went through all the periods of the night. Have you ever stayed up all night outside? Um, or maybe not all night, but you perhaps had the occasion to get up a few hours before sunrise and experience that. When I was younger, I used to go hunting with my dad, and sometimes we would get up way before dawn so that we'd have the best opportunity to find what we were hunting for. Some people do the same to go fishing. 
Um, there's something about being out there when it's completely dark except for the stars and experiencing the early dawn and the very gradual increase of light that becomes day. Jesus would have experienced all of this during his time of prayer. And it's likely his robe was damp from the dew. And he experienced the cool part of the night as he prayed as well. And then day came, verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now let's take a few moments to discuss what an apostle was or is. In a generic sense, the term apostle means something like one who was sent, or it could mean like a messenger or an emissary, um, ambassador maybe. Um, So Jesus chose these 12 and named them apostles. First, we have to note the group he chose the apostles from. Luke tells us he called his disciples and chose from them 12. Jesus didn't pick random people from the street at this point. He chose from among those who were already his disciples. Now, this may seem like an obvious point to some of you, but I fear that in the church today, it's not always clear to everyone that people who are to help in the ministry must be from among those who are already disciples of Jesus. I've known pastors and other church leaders whose philosophy is, well, let's just get everyone involved, give everyone some sort of a position in the church, And what they're usually doing is that's a sense of insecurity where I'm worried that someone's going to leave the church, but if I give them a position where they feel important, then maybe they'll stay. And I believe that's a big part of what drives that. It's a pragmatic outlook. And so uh, there's this idea that if we give them the job to do, then maybe even if they're not a believer yet, they'll become a believer by osmosis because we'll rub off on them or something like that, right? Um, or they think, well, maybe they'll get close, like that's how we get them to be more involved with the church and its mission. And maybe they'll get saved eventually. But that's not the right way to go about it. You see, that might be true in other organizations, such as a civic club or something, where you give someone some little title so they feel important, and that will somehow cement their commitment to the group because then they can tell their friends, well, I'm the treasurer of such and such or the whatever I am. So I've seen pastors or leaders in church put someone in charge of something they have no business leading. And so the the thought sometimes is, well, you know, we really need volunteers for youth ministry, so we just grab someone and say, come serve with us without having discerned whether they have actually been a committed disciple of Jesus. We haven't even heard their testimony or measured their understanding of any biblical doctrines. But we are putting them in a position of influence in the church, and this can be dangerous to the mission of the church. Believing in Jesus is a bare minimum requirement to serve in his church, but being a true disciple is beyond just verbal affirmation. Well, yes, I agree with the church's statement of faith. It's a demonstrated commitment to being a disciple. Sometimes we see the 12 apostles referred to as the 12 disciples. And this can cause some slight confusion to people at times since they think the term disciple applies to just these 12. But 
Disciples are learners. They're followers of a teacher. So all who belong to Christ should think of themselves as disciples. When the apostles are referred to as the 12 disciples, it's simply a way to differentiate those who were the 12 from the others. And Jesus once sent out 70 disciples for a particular preaching mission. This does not mean they were apostles in the sense that we're talking about. According to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, an apostle is someone or something sent. It's derived from the verb to send out. In the New Testament, usually it refers to someone sent as an authorized agent by Jesus or the Christian community, but usually by Jesus. Jesus himself was called an apostle. Hebrews 13.1, Therefore, brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And throughout much of history, uh, through the church, there's been apostles, uh, an understanding of apostles that have some qualifications. In other words, there's a general agreement among church uh, theologians throughout history that there were at least these three uh, or these qualifications. One, they were a personal witness to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, they had to be an eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus, and they were personally appointed by Jesus to this specific office. So there are not any new apostles being added in the church today. Um, there are denominations who appoint people as apostles. Uh, I, I don't think there's any biblical authority to do that whatsoever because... Uh, the understanding of the church has always been apostles were personally appointed by Jesus to a specific office. We also consider that the apostles had authority based on their, by their, uh, on their personal appointment by Jesus that no one in the church today could possibly have. And that is why we say that God's word is our authority, not any current person serving in some ministry capacity. Even Luther said, popes and, and councils can err, right? So even a group of people are not the authority. The Bible is the authority. And so that's why we say that. The Bible is our authority. God's word is our authority. Uh, you don't come under my authority. You come under God's authority. And his word is the ultimate authority to us. All of us are to come under the authority of the Bible. We also consider the authentic writings of the apostles to carry the authority of Jesus since they were appointed by him for this task. Peter referred to the writings of Paul as scripture. And so there are no new apostles in the church today. This is not an office that continued after the death of the original apostles. Now, we should note that one apostle was replaced. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was replaced by Matthias, and you can read about that in Acts 1, where we also see Peter give some qualifications of who was eligible to replace Judas as a, an apostle. So after declaring that Judas needs to replace, be replaced, Peter says this in Acts 1, starting at verse 21. It says, so one of the men who have accompanied us, so here's the qualifications that uh, Peter is giving. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, 
beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. Notice there it is again, praying before making a leadership decision. Uh, They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here are qualifications that Peter gave for the one who would replace Judas have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. In other words, they had to be witnesses of Jesus. They were not people who heard about him through someone else. They were eyewitnesses, and they were also to be witnesses of the resurrection. So Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, but what about Paul the apostle? He was not one of the twelve, yet he was a personal witness to the resurrected Jesus And he was also personally appointed by Jesus to this office. Now, we will not discuss all the names here this morning uh, in the list we find in Luke 6. But let us note the list that it starts with Simon, whom Jesus called Peter or named Peter. Um, Peter was the rock that the church would be built on. I want to read something written by R.C. Sproul in his great commentary on Luke about what some of this means, this naming of the apostles. Sproul writes this, The transfer of authority from the Father to the Son is, in turn, transferred to his own apostles. So they function in an absolutely unique role in the church. No minister in the church today has the authority of an apostle, nor do any of the great theologians. All defer to the authority of the apostles which resides in the fact that they were set apart and commissioned by Christ. In the ancient world, a person who functioned in the role of an apostle was usually a representative of a king or some important political ruler who had the authority to speak on behalf of his ruler. He was usually serving in the function of an emissary, much as an ambassador would serve today. The apostle carried with him the authority of the one who sent him. Now that is crucial to understanding the role of the apostle in the New Testament. Jesus elsewhere said when he sent out the apostles, those who receive you, receive me. Those who do not receive you, do not receive me. In fact, Paul says that the foundation of the church is the prophets and the apostles, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. The church is established on the basis of the teaching of the apostles, not because they are special in and of themselves, but because it is through the apostles that we get the word of Christ. Sometimes people comment, I believe what Jesus said, but it is Paul that bothers me. I won't listen to the apostle Paul. But we don't know anything that Jesus ever said except through the message of the apostles. Therefore, When we try to put Jesus against Paul, we're simply putting one apostle against another. An apostle speaks not on the basis of his his own authority, but on the basis of the one who commissions him. End quote. Sproul makes a great point here. We wouldn't know anything about what Jesus taught and did if it were not recorded for us in the Gospels. Uh, 
And who wrote the Gospels? The apostles. We take their accounts as authoritative because Christ commissioned them to this task. Now, let's uh, take some consideration here of Judas. Scripture teaches us that Jesus knew what was in the heart of everyone and that he knew Judas was a traitor from the beginning. So why would Jesus choose someone who would betray him? For starters, we know that in Judas, we have many warning lessons. We see what happens when greed grips a person. We see what happens when the tide turns against the holy, when men abandon the holy to find favor with the profane. In other words, when people choose to please men instead of God, which is what Judas in the end did. We see the destruction this caused for Judas personally as he ultimately he commits suicide and loses his soul. But there could be other lessons for us to consider. We can remember Judas was a Christian leader, and when a Christian leader falls away, which sadly happens all too often, or they have a moral failure, if Jesus felt secure enough in his church to allow this traitor in, knowing he would cause all sorts of problems and bring disgrace to himself and his position, then we ought to feel secure as well when someone we respect lets us down. It'll happen. It's happened to me many times, many of leaders who I admired. It'll happen to you if it hasn't already. But when someone you loved and admired as a Christian leader lets you down, will you let your faith be crushed? Would that not be saying you cannot trust Christ because some of his followers have betrayed him? If you would give up your faith because of evil men or women in the church, then you must be saying that through that though the betrayal of Judas uh, was not enough to destroy the faith of other disciples who followed Jesus, the person you respected is too important for the church, and that the, faith, that the church or the faith must fall since that person fell. We should not be disturbed when someone falls, though, as though our faith must be shattered. For our faith is never to be in people anyway, but in Christ alone. And the church, though it is not yet perfected, is still his church. And we are Christians because of Christ, not because of our Sunday school teacher or pastor or our parents or even the person who taught us the gospel that we believed in. We're Christians because of Christ. Our basis of truth is Scripture alone. Our salvation comes through faith alone. Our saving faith comes through grace alone, in Christ alone. And when our lives finally manifest Christ, it is for God's glory alone. Those are known by some people as the five solas. Sola scriptura, in scripture alone. Sola fide, in faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, in Christ alone. And solo deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Let us give glory to God that he, in his eternal and perfect plan to save all of those whom he calls to himself, that he determined who would be his servants, the apostles. And let us glory in the fact that he has given us his word by which we can learn of all these things. Let us marvel at the saving grace of his cross and let us thank him for all the good gifts he lavishes upon us, those spiritual gifts. 
And I'm going to close now by reading uh, from Philippians chapter 1. And here Paul notes towards the end of this reading that the mystery is revealed to the saints, his church, and that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Philippians 1, starting at verse 3, Paul is writing to the church. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprison is for Christ. And most of all, brothers, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me live is Christ. To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we've studied your word, 